Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have my guests introduce themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Apoorva and I'm originally from Mumbai. I moved to Amsterdam last June, June of 2019 for work. And I did not have a very traditional path to design. I actually studied engineering and started teaching myself design while I was still at uni. And now it's been four years of being in the industry, which feels really funny that it's been that long. <laughs> and my pronouns are she and her. Awesome. And what made you want to teach yourself design while you were studying in sciences? Uh, it's, it's really funny because I did actually enjoy engineering, but I felt part of me was super curious about human behavior and cognitive science. And you know how it is, like at college, you get all the avenues to explore all sorts of things. And I had a few friends who were doing computer science who had already started freelancing. And I sort of hung out with them and started understanding what web development entailed, design entailed, and then started doing a little bit of everything from CSS, HTML, to graphic design, to illustrations, to UI work, and somehow found the middle ground of uh, doing UX really interesting. And that sort of fed into my curiosity about just human behavior at scale and the kind of things we can do with doing design, the subjectivity of it. There's so much context involved uh, in everything as opposed to engineering science, for example, where things are more uh, analytical, more black and white. And this was suddenly opening up like a whole spectrum of thought. And I found that super interesting. I want to ask you more about what you're doing now. But before I get to that, you mentioned moving to Amsterdam from Mumbai for work. Yeah. I, I imagine that there's a lot of people, maybe some of our listeners that are curious of what that process looks like. Were you actively looking to move for work? Were you working at a company and then they were like, we're moving you to a different city? Did you choose Amsterdam or was it more about the job? Mm -hmm. Really curious just all around that process. Yeah, it's no, I wasn't actively looking, but I did. So I, well, I transitioned to design through design research. And then I had two years stint at a B2C company. And I realized that I also did want to move. The, the idea of designing for a much wider audience was intriguing. And uh, a part of me also wanted to live in Europe. So I wasn't actively looking, but I did have this opportunity come by and I went for it. And it all happened so fast, though, because I was still working at my previous job till the Friday and I pa literally packed my bags and moved the following Tuesday because, yeah, because I wasn't expecting the whole process to 
get done so fast. Like the Dutch government is super uh, efficient when it comes to mostly everything, but especially when accommodating expats and all the paperwork. So I was expecting a bit of a gap between to sort of process what's happening. Yeah, but it happened way too fast, but I loved it. And uh, to be very honest, yeah, I didn't interview with a lot of jobs uh, because I wasn't actively looking. And I kind of got lucky with this opportunity coming by. I flew down here for five days to see if I was a fit, if I if I liked the people, the team and everything. And uh, yeah, once I was here, I had no doubts that I really wanted to do this. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about what kind of UX design are you doing? Where are you doing it? And a little bit about that team that you mentioned as well. So I work as a UX designer at this company called SpeakApp. It is an internal communications platform, mostly focused to non-disc employees. When I say non-disc employees, I mean industries like retail, manufacturing, food industries, entertainment. So our clients have rituals, NS, McDonald's, Nike. So people who are not on the desk, on the shop floor, basically. And I work in a very small team. We are a product design team of five. So my day-to-day work is not the same. Every single day looks different. Sometimes it's a lot about obsessing over the little UX details. Some days I'm on all forums discussing copy about this little button. Some other days it's more focused on talking to customers and people who use our product, understanding what their pain points are also because of the wide variety in the client base. It's really hard to draw patterns that, yeah, that are common between this. So it involves a lot of talking as much as we can. And some other days, uh, it's working closely with the engineering team to sort of test things, ship things. And uh, sometimes it's a combination of everything, you know. But I think it's a really good change coming from doing something more specialized before. And honestly, I didn't expect to have such a wider like a breadth of experiences in this company, in this job, because I one example is we recently redesigned the search experience on our platform. And I found myself making decisions ranging from the smaller UI details to prioritizing work and also running database queries to improve relevance. Just things that I hadn't done before, you know. It's scary to be thrown into the deep end of things, but I think it's the best way to learn. And I have a great team who helped me with everything. So that's been really nice. I'm curious, what are the qualities that make them great? And I have to imagine that there's an element of mentorship that's there because you mentioned like you're doing a lot of things that you haven't done before. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. where are you learning those new things? Is it all from within your team? Do you have to go to other resources to learn those things? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of it does come, well, it is a combination of we have be having a very supportive team, but also going a little out of your way to gather and learn things that you're working on. But I think on the team aspect, I feel like I just found people who are very supportive because I have a tendency to get really easily fascinated by everything. <laughs> and and uh, that can be obsessive. I'm just like, oh, whoa, this is insane. Can you teach me that? Oh, I want to learn more about this. So I have found people that weren't very supportive of an attitude like that. But in this job, I found that to be extremely liberating, where I found people sitting down with me, 
going through stupid details like we had a new tool for example mixpanel which is a product analytics tool and we were like okay well we're going to do data driven decisions now okay where do we start so i was like okay i need someone to sit with me go through this process so a lot of help from my peers but also just self learning a lot of it involves self learning i didn't go to a design school so i've always been in the process of teaching myself design and everything that came with it been extremely online all the time <laughs> seeing what's happening in the industry going into the little details reaching out to people i think it was really hard for me to first reach out to people to ask for help i had that imposter syndrome of not studying design formally and i had a couple of bad experiences where that was a big factor you know so that sort of really demotivated me but then i sort of pushed myself to ask for help in the areas that i didn't know and wanted to know more about and i was surprised at how helpful people can be like you shouldn't let a few experiences dictate the entire thing and yeah it's a lot of lot of uh, online <laughs> also <laughs> I'm glad that you pushed through that and found other people that were willing to help and not be difficult. <laughs> yeah, and not just people, there's also tons of resources, right? We live in age of over information. It's also just so overwhelming sometimes. So many times I have started courses, finished it, uh, never finished it, finished left it at 20%, got distracted by another course. So it's also really uh, important to cultivate some focus about the topics you're trying to learn because of just so many avenues of learning. You mentioned using a tool Mixpanel for yeah. data decisions to influence your design work. What other tools do you use to do your job? I have to admit I don't do as much visual design in this job as much as I'm focused in user research, user testing, a lot of now uh, the data driven decision part we also recently uh, launched a beta testing program so you have to understand this is a b2b product so we don't have direct channels with our end users we have the mid level managers we have the customers and clients so i have been very focused on getting this whole data driven decisions part and improving the process for it and mixpanel only satisfies the quantitative aspect of it but the beta testing program was launched to gather qualitative insights so we had a couple of us clients big clients some the sort of customers that were more or less representative of the entire uh, user base and have them test features beforehand run smaller um, chunks of sprints so the tools involved in that are pretty basic i think i use a lot of notion <laughs> a lot of confluence actually because we use confluence at work but i personally prefer notion but that doesn't involve a lot of double work <laughs> so it's like okay we could constantly migrating and back and forth a lot of documentation mostly documentation tools and wireframing for wireframing i have tried a bunch of tools and i keep falling back to pen and paper which is really something and then again double work efficiency doesn't seem to be my best <laughs> so i have to take photos and scan it so i'm trying uh, a bunch of other tools now and then but i just don't seem to uh, stick with one i come back to the most analog way of doing everything <laughs> they work really well so it's they a do. good choice. they really do look i have like posters on my laptop all over right now <laughs> Uh, yeah. What would we do without post-its? 
So what advice do you have for someone that wants to get into UX design? I think it's great that if you want to find your area of expertise and learn more about it, but my advice would be to also alongside that seek to be a more well-rounded person, a more well-rounded designer. I think it's really important to be curious about topics that are not just related to your area because this everything we do does never actually works in singularity. There's so many aspects that come together to make the whole thing work that it's really important to broaden your perspective. It's really important to yeah unlearn some things, know more, educate yourself more on the topics that you don't know about, be very aware of your biases. All of these things come and play such a huge role in making you a good designer that it's as you move on in the career, you realize that it's much so much less about the tools and the pixels, but so much more about a lot of other things. So it's something that I have realized recently and I try to just go as wide as I can. And then that the thing I said about being easily fascinated does help because <laughs> keep jumping from topic to topic, but that's the, that, there's, there's uh, a lot of ups to that. And you mentioned that you got into design through doing design research. Yeah. I, I think that's a really great path into UX design. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what advice you might have for someone that wants to get into design research, either as a foothold into becoming a designer or maybe just to move into design research itself. Because I think it's also a very unique and cool job yeah. function. Yeah. I think I use design research as a stepping stone into design and I wasn't to be very honest sure what I was getting into. I ended up loving it though because I had my project uh, which was an HCI project which was a pretty healthy combination of electronics and design research. So that was sort of my transition from my previous engineering knowledge and somewhere in the middle. And I think design research is great. There's so much it's, and like you said, it's a great way in into UX as well, because it teaches you how to go into the depths of things. I used to work without any sorts of constraints. I'll get to the downsides of it, but it really teaches you how to gather context about everything you're doing, look at things extreme minutely understanding people really closely spend time doing it not have to rush through to only have some sort of outcome or output and it was also really fulfilling because my project was in healthcare and we were trying to help ALS patients in India to communicate better with their surroundings so I would spend a lot of time being in their homes it was a very sensitive thing as well to be a shadow into their lives, to understand their lives. So it taught me a lot of things that if I had just gone ahead and started working as a UX designer, I wouldn't have. You know, that's the cultivating that sort of empathy, getting outside our own bubble, you know, the sort of impact we talk about. You need to get as close to ground as you can. And that gave me an opportunity to do it, which I didn't anticipate before. But like I said, there's also <laughs> downsides to it that you can keep going into the depths of it, all rabbit holes that open. We had a side project of icon usability because we, to the point, my professor and I went down such a rabbit hole that we wanted to challenge. And at some point we do want to the ISO standards for the comprehensibility of icons because these standards are really not inclusive. 
of a lot of factors. It's a story for another day. But you know, these are private holes that wouldn't be possible if you were designing in a business. And I was really missing those constraints, not knowing when to stop, not knowing where to draw the line. That also has its side effects on what we're trying to do. We were trying to help people. We were well-intentioned. But if we keep going down these rabbit holes without meeting some sort of goals, then how are we going to help them? There needs to be a fine balance. I don't know if it was about the place I was at, but most research tends to have similar structures, if you know what I mean. But the project went well. After that project sort of was wrapped up, it never ends. That's also another thing in three shows. It never ends. There's always more. Uh, but I decided to move on and then get into the industry in the more traditional sense of working as a UX designer. So what about more senior people in our field? What advice would you give them? This might be a complete tangent from... <laughs> design related things I think there's a lot of advice out there for senior people to look at when it comes to designing and mentoring but I something that I find really uh, important to say is that okay first of all we need to I think personally we need to raise the bar of who we call seniors in our industry because yeah you need to be really mindful about the responsibilities that you bear the influence that you hold and use it well. And especially if you're in a place of privilege, you need to use your voice to be an ally to underrepresented minorities in our field, to give them a platform, give a platform for their voice. For far too long, people in positions of power have been white cis head men, you know? And it's really important for the seniors to call out on behaviors that are problematic, not to to support those people who do and not be dismissive of it, to not sweep it under the carpet because you don't want to ruffle any feathers or you don't want to uh, break any friendships you have in the industry. You know, it's, it's really important to think critically and stand up for what's right and not just say it. It's, it's time to act and work on it. So everything aside, this is a big thing that... I really think that needs to happen. As someone who's mid-level now and who's grown up looking at seniors in our field, I wish I had more instances where people supported me for talking out against some things. And that's where it comes from, I guess. I love that. And maybe you can expand on that a little bit more with my next question of like, what are your tips for fighting the white supremacy and the racism and the sexism and all the other bigotries that are in our industry and specifically in design and in leadership? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like I said, we need to give positions of decision making and power to folks that represent all of us, not just a section of us. And diversity and inclusion is not just a checkbox. You know, you can't just have women and juniors and BIPOC as tokens. That's not enough. That's, in fact, worse than doing nothing when you uh, resort to tokenism. You really need to go and do the hard work. Yes, it's hard, but that's what we are in it for. And do the hard work, not expect uh, people to spoon feed you. Go educate yourself on these topics. There's a lot of resources. There's a lot of practical guides. This is not just an intellectual theory about inclusivity. There's a lot of practical guides that companies small and big within their capacity can do to 
contribute to this cause. Yeah, I think it's just lazy when people th- say that things like inclusivity and things like are just lead to mediocre work or not as good or it's just not within our capacity and then go to shortcuts of having like a few people, you know, like a university brochure, like a check mark of a few people of color. Trust me, I have been in a place where I've been a brown woman, have been used as a token in places. And that's really infuriating to see when you see that that's it. That's just the extent to which I'm helpful for, or that's the extent to which your efforts go to, right? I did have another point to say about fighting this is that we should be holding people accountable for their behaviors. Just change won't happen if we are not doing that. I feel like the whole conversation about this is apolitical, we are apolitical, we are mission focused is bullshit. Everything is political. Design is political, you know. So even having said that, human rights is not politics, it's rights. There's people who need to stand up for it now. It's just really urgent. I feel the urgency. I want to see more of it and I want to be doing more as well and helping others do that and understand it. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more accountability as well. And to your point, that there's nothing that's apolitical. It's just that it aligns with a person's politics or doesn't affect them. And for a practice that's seen as so empathetic, it's very unempathetic. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I also like what you said about people being lazy and sort of disingenuous and Uh saying, like, maybe something isn't happening. It's almost a form of gaslighting. It's just sort of an ignorance even, but... I don't think it's necessarily someone pretend. I feel like it's someone pretending it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, then being unaware of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like you said, we're in this time of like over information. Mm-hmm. So to say that, you know, you don't believe something exists or you don't, you haven't heard about it. It's it, I guess lazy, you did say it was lazy. It is lazy in that way, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you see so many discourses happening every single day on Twitter. It's so exhausting. It feels so, does feel like it's you as a senior or as someone people in the field look up to, you have the responsibility to push yourself to do the hard work, you know? And okay, at least not go out and say things that completely counter the point or counter all the efforts everyone else is putting in. Like, I I don't know if you saw that, but the the whole accessibility conversation that happened recently on Twitter. Which time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one that was from a couple of days ago. I don't know who it was, but it sort of boiled down to saying that accessibility is stupid or something like that. And I don't know where to begin, really. It's just lazy. Yeah. I liked it. Whoever said that is stupid. I saw a response to their point that I really liked. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to steal it. I apologize because I don't remember who said it. But Mm -hmm. a website that is completely white text on a white background Mm -hmm. is inaccessible to sighted people, but could be accessible to a screen reader. So accessibility isn't just this word that means for a subset of people with a disability. Mm -hmm. It's we all access things in different ways. So accessibility is the core part of your job, not just 
this like thing tacked on at the end. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't see why it has to be a burden. And that's really well put, right? Like it's, I'm also stealing from someone who mentioned this in the comments now, God damn it. But I think they said that this doesn't have to be a burden because we work already, we work with a lot of constraints uh, and there are, a, it's, you can see it as a creative challenge, you know, the, to just, and it's also not about being on the right side of the law. I don't know where people get that from. That's just really not the point. Yeah. Also, a, a lot of designers, especially in UX, they're making something that generates money. Mm-hmm. And so wouldn't you want to target more people to make more money? Unfortunately, we work in this capitalistic system where that's what, what our job ends up being is like, how do we generate more money, which is very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality of the situation. So wouldn't you want more customers? Yeah, that's the goal, right? <laughs> that you do have as more, many more people see it does not. It doesn't add up. <laughs> it just doesn't. Yeah. Oh, it's a conversation for another time, but I really feel like the opinion of being anti-accessibility, quote unquote, is rooted in white supremacy. So yeah, but we could spend a, a whole podcast on that. Alone. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who is someone that the listeners should know about? I think there's a lot of amazing people out there that inspire me, but I think everyone should know and follow Dori, Dori Hin, who was recently the creative director at Figma. She's not only a great designer, but she's also someone who uses her influence to talk about the problems in our industry, advocate for change, and call of any sort of bullshit. And I think I really admire her for it. And she's been my best Twitter follow so far. <laughs> I fortunately got to work with Tori at Figma for just a little bit of my time there. That's and amazing. She is incredible. And yeah. I think everyone should follow her. And I agree with you. She's one of the best follows on Twitter. So. Absolutely. Yeah. What about reading? What book do you think everyone should read? So this is one of my most recent reads, and I really enjoyed it. It's called User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Work, uh, Live, and Play. It's by Cliff Kuag and Robert Fabricant. So I, it surveys the history of user-centered design with like a lot of engaging examples. One of the first ones being about the um, Three Mile Island incident, 1979, the almost tragedy at the nuclear power plant. And it's an example of how a very small mistake would turn into something that could potentially destroy the whole plant because the control room was poorly designed, right? It had all, all of these like a thousand dials and like some 600 alarms laid out broadly with really poor feedback systems, right? And basic engineering of the plant was sound, but while the small mistake happened, the plant was in the process of shutting itself down as it was meant to be as a fail-safe response, but if it were left alone, it would shut down safely. But the operators, they misunderstood the problem and then they turned off the emergency cooling system. And the result of that was like a partial meltdown of the facility. And that's so crazy because this book really highlights a lot of these interesting examples to bring home the point that uh, non-existent feedback loops in design in our lives being the cause of a lot of problems. And that one of the bigger challenges we face is to create these better, tighter feedback loops in our day-to-day lives where they don't exist, even our environment, our healthcare system, and our government. So it's a great book. I also learned something interesting that Don Norman, who is famously known for his design of everyday things, 
was sort of became the advocate for usability after he helped write a report about the Three Mile Island incident. So he was one of the people who was sort of assessing it and sort of doing, writing a report on it. And he must have just been like, what the hell? <laughs> it's, it's a good book. It sounds like it. I wasn't familiar with that story, so I'll have to check it out. I haven't heard of this book yet, so I'm excited to read it. Yeah. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So we share the profits from our show, from our advertisers with our guests of the show. Are there other ways that the the listeners could support you as well? I, I love web comics and I obsess about them. I've tried to create them myself, but I don't think I'm very good. But if people like them as much as I do. It would be cool if you could follow a Twitter list that I've made of these artists and support their art and buy their stuff because it's they're so cool and uh, so amazing. And I feel like I'm a hoarder of the books and the prints, all the comic prints, and I keep buying them. And it's just so wholesome to sit back without your phone and keep giggling through these little tidbits <laughs> of, of humor. I currently also have, we have this Ono Alex Norris comic on our wall. Every time we pass, I'm doing a little giggle. So I think it would be really cool to support. There's so many cool artists out there, but I have a list that I'll share that has specifically the web comic artists that I love and have been following for a while now. That's great. I will link that in the show notes as well. And just a little shameless plug here is we have a list that you can follow that's all of the Bezier guests as well. So both those lists will be in the show notes. <laughs> So I know you from Twitter. We've mentioned it a couple times on the show. I, I'd imagine that's a great place for people to find you. Are there other places you'd like people to find you? I, I'm not really active on other social platforms, although I do compensate for that on Twitter by <laughs> being uh, obsessively online on Twitter. You could reach me on Twitter at Purva underscore Savant, but I'm also, you can also reach me on LinkedIn for any work-related stuff. Apurva, thank you so much for being on Bezier. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Uh, no, thanks a lot for having me. This was a lot of fun and uh, just stay safe. I think we're almost at the end of this. Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.